about a pattern of injustice, unfair treatment that black Americans and communities of color have endured. The way these police have been behaving, the fact that we're letting these guys get away with murder is ridiculous. From CPR News and Colorado Matters, our listening session continues. Many are asking how laws might change after George Floyd's death. We hear what some legislators are proposing as if their lives depended on it. Yet there are fears the pendulum will swing too far. And have a huge chilling effect on recruiting the kinds of people that we actually want in the police force. Plus, a faith perspective. Colorado's first black Episcopal bishop who leads a mostly white flock. A memorial service takes place this afternoon for George Floyd, whose death in Minneapolis has sparked protests all over Colorado, in Denver, Colorado Springs, Grand Junction, Gunnison. We know many are wondering what laws might change as a result of this. CPR's Alexandra McMahon has been looking into this. Hi, Alexandra. Hey, Ryan. And what can you tell us? Well, Democratic State Representative Leslie Harrod of Denver introduced sweeping legislation this week to increase police transparency and accountability. She announced this bill to a large crowd of protesters outside the state capitol. We will not rest, not only until this bill is passed, but until every single law enforcement officer who harms or kills our community is taken out of office and put in jail. What exactly would the bill do? Uh, This bill is trying to do a lot. First, it would require that all officers in the state wear body cameras. Second, it would make it easier for citizens to sue individual officers if they believe misconduct has occurred. Currently, officers have immunity and taxpayers and local governments are on the hook to pay out those settlements. There's also quite a bit in this bill about creating and maintaining public databases, tracking all the data released related to police stops and when an officer makes an unannounced entry into a home. Also, cases where use of force results in death or serious bodily injury. What else does the bill do? Well, it says if an officer pleads guilty and is fired over use of excessive force, their peace officer certification is revoked, making it basically impossible for them to work for a different department. Uh, Oh, also, they could lose their certification if they fail to intervene when one of their colleagues is acting inappropriately. That's a reflection there of the George Floyd case for sure. There's, There's a lot of talk about why the officers didn't intervene, the other officers on scene. Uh, Incidentally, all four of those officers now face charges. I understand some law enforcement agencies and lawmakers think this bill is an overreach. Yes. Republican Representative Colin Larson of Jefferson County says he's on board with the idea of expanding the use of body cameras, but... Ending qualified immunity, I think, is a disastrous policy. I think it will have a horrible effect on effective policing and ultimately result in a lot of, you know, good officers being subject to an overly litigious environment and have a huge chilling effect on recruiting the kinds of people that we actually want in the police force. Representative Larson prefers that lawmakers have more time on a bill like this to get community and stakeholder input. Something that's this big, that's this systemic, needs to have buy-in from all sides, because if it's seen as being anti-police or being anti-communities of color, You know, it's not going to satisfy either side and it's just going to inflame tensions and it's not going to do anything to solve the issue. What are you hearing from law enforcement, Alexandra? 
The County Sheriffs of Colorado, the Colorado Fraternal Order of Police, and the Colorado Association of Chiefs of Police released a joint statement Tuesday asking that duty to intervene language be added to an existing state law. This language would require officers to step in if they see a colleague using unreasonable force uh, or else face prosecution. Uh, Officers currently must report use of force to their supervisors in Colorado, and some police departments already have rules about intervening, but adding that language to the existing statute would make that decree statewide. What's happening at the congressional level, if anything? Democratic Congressman Ed Perlmutter announced Wednesday he would ask House leadership to vote on a package of bills immediately. These six pieces of legislation address police brutality, racial profiling, and the use of excessive and militarized force. But keep in mind, these bills would have to make it through a Republican-controlled Senate that only sparingly takes up anything from the House. Xandra, thanks so much. Sure. Colorado Matters producer, Xandra McMahon. Remember that you can interact with us in real time. Questions for our guests, thoughts about what you're hearing. CPR's Avery Lill is monitoring those. Yes, I'm monitoring those, and we are getting quite a few responses. Um, A lot of folks frustrated with the use of police force and tear gas and asking a lot about that. Uh, You can use the hashtag AskCM on Twitter to engage with us. On the phone right now, Elizabeth Epps of the Colorado Freedom Fund. She raises money to free black people from jail, including those arrested during the protests. She was a member of a committee that worked on Denver's use of force policy. But this week she resigned in a tweet that came with a photograph of her thigh. Elizabeth, welcome back. Good morning. Thanks for having me back. I'm sorry for the circumstances. Excited about the bill, but glad to be with you. You actually posted two photos in this resignation tweet. What do those photos show? Yeah, um, thanks for letting me clarify. First, I want to be clear, the photo of my leg is actually, um, I want to be clear that it's the back of my leg. Um, And there's quite a few more bruises that just because of intimate areas I didn't show, but they're all on the back on my back of my uh, torso and the back of my legs. The other picture was actually just a screenshot from um, I was live streaming outside the Capitol on the uh, south side of the Capitol um, on last Thursday, which was just a few hours after speaking about a dozen, dozen of us speaking with Chief Pazin about use of force refresher training for his officers. And just a few hours after that meeting, I was there on the south steps um, with a friend, with a couple of friends, and were, without warning, um, subjected to tear gas. And we were live streaming. It was lighthearted. People were singing. Children were still out. Um, and we were gassed. Um, I appreciate that we're on the radio, so you can't see my lips quivering, see me shaking right now. Um, and so the picture that I posted was just the still of me talking about the experience of having just been tear gassed by by neighbors, <laughs> by neighbors wearing badges. And the bruises um, a, that you clarify that were on the back of your leg, those were from police projectiles? Yes. Um, uh, it was hard to, to keep up with what was happening um, as we were assaulted multiple times over the course of those first couple of nights before the curfew um, and after. Um, there were rubber bullets. I'm not sure what their proper title is. There were like a paint pellet that exploded with a dirty acid sort of thing. Um, and uh, uh, there's some combination of adrenaline and something else that, that slightly numbed the pain in the moment for me, but um, it was terrible. I'm actually on my way, Ryan, right now to the Capitol. I'm about a mile away, and I, I chose to wear a dress, which is what I would usually wear, but I 
wanted to wear pants to cover, but I decided to just go ahead and, and show my, my legs as I would otherwise dress. Um, and they still look terrible and they uh, really represent um, one of many examples of the use of force policy not being followed in Denver by Denver police. And um, it was why I, I, for one, could not continue to be a part of the, the committee. As we heard in our first hour from the head of public safety, uh, there will be an investigation into those complaints if they're brought to the attention of the city. Uh, Just briefly, before I let you go and uh, on your way to the Capitol, you said in this resignation tweet, plenty of black folks will shuck and jive for you. It just can't be me anymore. Say a few words about that, your resignation from the Use of Force Committee. Thank you for the opportunity to follow up on that. Sometimes I don't do a great job of anticipating what's going to catch people's ear. I want to clarify that um, any black folks, specifically Dr. Calderon and Robert Davis and other folks who have continued their work with the committee, they're not shucking and jiving. But I felt like I was. And what I mean by that is it was extremely emotionally draining for me for a period of 18 months of intense work and then another year and a half of less frequent work to go into policing spaces, including we had meetings at their academy, um, which was very traumatic for me and very exposing. And in order to get through that, I very much had to put on a mask. I had to uh, work to be almost just try to be a sort of delightful, laughing, joking, how are you doing version of myself that is not really how I felt in the presence of officers. And so when I say shucking and jiving, I'm, I'm both talking about what I felt like I had to do to get through it. And I'm just acknowledging that I can't do that anymore. I'm grateful for black and brown and indigenous folks who can continue to work in that space directly. I just can't. It's too draining. And it was deeply insulting to know that within hours of talking in good faith about use of force training, that the same officers who would be doing that training, who've already been trained on it, could unleash on me and my neighbors so unceremoniously. Thanks so much for your time. That's organizer and abolitionist Elizabeth Epps of the Colorado Freedom Fund. You know, protests have changed the look and feel of daily life in some parts of Colorado. You know, there's been a curfew in some cities buildings and streets and monuments with graffiti. And a a couple of people have called in to tell us about how they're affected by that. This first message is from Luke Hauser. He lives in Westminster, and he works for the city of Denver in the Parks Department. When I work in the Parks Department, it just seems like our parks are falling into a further and further state of disrepair and deterioration, either from petty acts of vandalism during COVID-19 or more egregious acts of vandalism that are occurring as a result of Black Lives Matter movement. And whether they're actually perpetrated by individuals who support the cause or not is is still ambiguous. So it just, uh, as an employee, it absolutely disheartens you to see kind of the continual day in, day out, overnight destruction that occurs uh, in our kind of shared public spaces. And for that reason, I just wanted to call in and express my deep concern and just overwhelming anxiety that is kind of circumventing around the issues that are plaguing our society today. Then there's Stephanie Gray. She lives in Capitol Hill in the thick of the protests. I'm just so tired. Um, There's been tear gas coming in with the windows shut uh, in Capitol Hill because the cops keep launching tear gas directly at protesters. And it's terrifying. I, I hear the, the loud bangs go off. I see the flashes of light in the night. And even with my windows closed, the tear gas is still getting in. It's horrible. I feel it in my eyes and nose every single night. 
and it's being used against people who are protesting for the right to live. I wish that Denver PD would stop using undue force on protesters via tear gas. It's getting into our apartments. It's getting into our lives. And the loud bangs, honestly, you know, I'm someone who's, you know, survived some scary stuff in life. And those, those loud bangs are, are very upsetting to me. And they put me in a bad mental state where I can't even work properly the next day. And the tear gas is just wrecking my, my eyes and my, my nose. It's awful. Hi, my name is Dornicia McGrath. Um, I live down here in Colorado Springs. I've got to say, I'm pretty frustrated and disappointed at the moment. Um, so with me being um, a young Black woman, I'm 19, I'm currently in college studying graphic design, all that jazz, and just seeing how quickly people can change when faced with tragedy and stress, it it really bumps me out. Like, you have a nation where we're supposed to come together during times of crisis. However, you have people out here looting, destroying other people's property, destroying their own communities. There, I, I just heard news this morning about um, a retired officer who died protecting his friend's shop. The man's name is David Dorn, 77-year-old retired police captain of the St. Louis Police Department. David Patrick Underwood, he was, I think he was another officer who has been killed during the riots. Calvin Munerlin, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Um, He was the security guard at the Family Dollar who got murdered um, after telling a woman that her daughter needed to wear a mask in order to go into the store. You have Tony Tempa, who was um, who was abused by the police in Dallas, Texas. Just all these cases are very heartbreaking. Honestly, I feel like the epidemic that we have on our hands isn't systematic racism or racism in general. I think it's the way that we all as humans are treating each other. It doesn't matter what race, color, or creed you are if you do something terrible. It's what you do to people. People are being really inhumane. And it's heartbreaking to see. A lot of people probably wouldn't approve of what I'm saying with me being a young black woman and all. This is a very difficult time for everybody. Everyone, be safe, be careful, and... I wish the best of luck to you. God bless, universe bless, all of us, whatever you believe in. And have a good day. This is the listening session from Colorado Matters and CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. African Americans are three times more likely than whites to be killed by police. It's something black parents talk to their kids about. It becomes a lifelong awareness, a lifelong anxiety, and no doubt, a source of anger. So what's the psychological toll of all that? Let's ask the head of the Denver Rocky Mountain Chapter of the Association of Black Psychologists and a former president of its national organization. Anthony P. Young is also former chairman of the state parole board. And welcome to the show. Good morning. Anthony, you've used the word trauma to describe what's going on in African-American communities. How does that trauma show up? Well, trauma definitely shows up in depression anger, anxiety, 
um, low self-esteem, and a lot of many other different ways. But when we think about trauma, let's look at um, let's look at this from the vantage point that in America, there has never been a time that African Americans have not been terrorized. That goes back to the moment that we were kidnapped and enslaved uh, and, and, and brought to America. So we have always been in crises, whether or not uh, that's recognized by the media or by the public in general. We have found ourselves in a, in a constant state of being terrorized, and it doesn't matter if it's Denver or New York or Chicago or wherever. I would dare equate the type of, of, of ongoing terrorism that our people have experienced to a pandemic. Right now, we're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, which is something which is most recent. However, the pandemic of racism, and be more specific, white supremacy, has been something that we have dealt with ever since we came uh, to this nation against our will. I would like to share with you a definition, because too often times we get uh, cross-wired by using words that are not well-defined. And I, w- I would just like to clear the air that when I talk about racism, that's being very polite. What I'm talking about essentially is white supremacy. Uh, white, uh, supremacy. And here's a definition for you. And this was coined by Nellie Fuller Jr., uh, a great writer who has actually analyzed this, this issue for many years. Hmm. The definition of white supremacy is a direct or indirect systemic or systematic subjugation of non-white people by white people for the basic purpose of pleasing and or serving the interests of white people in, in all areas of activity, including economics, education, entertainment, labor, law, politics, religion, sex, and war. White supremacy includes the belief in the genetic intellectual superiority of white people over all others. It's a worldwide system of belief and behavior. So when we think about being traumatized, that's been manifested in, in all of the institutions within America. So there, there is not one institution in the nation which has not directly traumatized people of African, uh, African descent, as well as other people of color. So in this so case, you are, about, you're not just yeah. pointing to law enforcement, but you are pointing to many American systems. I, I wonder, uh, Anthony Young, Absolutely. what you think has been so catalyzing about the George Floyd case. Is it the video? Is it the times we're in? Well, it is not just the video. The, the video, uh, fortunately, was, was, was caught on tape for all people to see around the nation. But those conditions that um, Mr. Floyd experienced, the murder, that is not something uncommon in America. It has happened time and time again. Unfortunately, we have the technology for all people to see that. This reminds me of, of, of the 1960s when the world was taken aback and in shock after watching police fire hose, peaceful demonstrators, during the uh, civil rights movement, um, that was the technology of yesterday. Today we have live streaming so people can see this. Up close and personal, the type of conditions that African Americans have experienced ongoingly since we were kidnapped and enslaved in America. I th- understand that you would like something similar to a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in this country. Will will you leave us with that idea? Well, first and foremost, 
America has never had an authentic conversation on racism. And I'm using that term rather than white supremacy, even even though they're the same. Our leadership, and I'm referring to our federal, state, and local politicians, have not had the political will or the courage to address the issue because in order for America to heal from the century of racial destruction, which has occurred as a result of the lies about uh, black inferiority and white superiority, uh, we have not been willing to engage in that conversation. And I think it is primarily because of all of the anger and guilt and horror that people would have to confront in, in order to really be authentic and honest about our history as a nation. It's very painful, and the conversation would be very painful, but the only way that we can heal, from my vantage point, is for us to have that authentic conversation, something that South Africa did successfully, to come to terms with its history of violence against black people. America needs to do the same thing. And without having that authentic conversation about racism and, and, the, way in which, uh, uh, and the various ways in which it has destroyed the dreams uh, uh, and, and lives of uh, black people and also white people who have been affected by this as well. Without that conversation, we will never heal and we'll find ourselves having ongoing turmoil as we have had for centuries in this nation. Thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate your time. Oh, you're more than welcome. Anthony P. Young is president of the Denver Rocky Mountain Association of Black Psychologists and former president of the National Association. He's also a former chair of the state parole board and teaches at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Next, a caller who zeroed in on what it's like for cops in times like these, particularly African-American cops. Here's Jennifer Petrie of Denver. I'm frustrated because I don't hear anything about black lives that matter when they're police officers. That is wrong, and I think it's heartbreaking. I think that police generally are good police. And I also have another comment. Protesters, all these young protesters, should be the force for change. And to do that, they should become a police officer. That would be the best way to really have an impact. Well, Jennifer, our next guest has spent more than 30 years in local and federal law enforcement. He was high-ranking at the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives in Denver. Matthew Horace wrote a book about his experiences as an African-American cop called The Black and the Blue. He joins me now from his home uh, in Minneapolis. Welcome, Matt. Thank you. Good morning. Glad to be here. Put us in the shoes of a cop assigned to the protests that we are now seeing. What does it feel like? Well, I couldn't agree with the caller uh, anymore. Uh, You know, I was here for the Rodney King uh, riots, and I was a member of our SWAT team during that period. So there's a you're torn because you understand the frustration of the community, but then you're also sworn. So you're torn and you're sworn to uphold the law. And when you see rioting and looting and crimes being committed by criminals, right, and and you're involved with it, but then you understand the frustration of the community. And you're working around your colleagues in many times, and they don't understand the frustration of the community. They see all this stuff happening, and they approach it in a very us versus them instead of us versus us mentality. 
So it's very frustrating at times. Is it lonely? It sounds lonely. Oh, it's extremely lonely. Well, you know, I, I say in the, in, in the book, The Black and the Blue, that, you know, sometimes you can't be black enough um, for your culture, and sometimes you can't be blue enough for your job. And it, and it creates a really lonely existence at times. I understand that you actually reread your book in just the last couple of weeks. What were you looking to learn? I was looking to see if there was anything I had missed in my understanding of our history and how we're approaching things. And, you know, what I learned, and the book has been out for two years now, and what I learned is we still haven't gotten it right. And um, we need to keep working at it. And, and I agree that this groundswell of youth support uh, might be exactly what we need right now. We need some change management. What I find fascinating is that for years now, there has been discussion of implicit bias on police forces. There's been, by the way, both among uh, white officers and, and officers of color, but th- there's been lots of discussion and adoption of body cameras. Uh, but it seems that the needle doesn't really move. The, the numbers don't change dramatically. What What do you think is... Um, so tricky here. Well, one of the things is that we're like the master of the workarounds. So body cameras only um, are useful if they work and if they're on. And you see many cases where body cameras are being turned off. Officers are taking the chance of turning them off uh, before incidents. And even though they're being disciplined in certain departments or even fired, uh, they're making that decision that whatever it is they plan on doing or think could happen, they don't want a record of it. So we're the, we're the masters of the workaround, and we figured out how to do that. But as a couple of chiefs have told me along the way, once you start hitting people in, in the pocketbook, um, that's where it makes a difference. When people's careers are at stake and their jobs and their livelihoods are, are at stake, then they're not looking for those workarounds. And perhaps they go back to doing the job the way it should be done. I am hearing someone who is an officer of the law say, we are the master of the workarounds. Isn't that painting with an awfully broad brush? Well, I'm not suggesting that all of us are doing it. What I'm suggesting is that we've seen these cases along the way where the first question is, where's the video? And then the answer is the video wasn't working or it wasn't on or the officer turned it off. So this does happen and it has happened all too often. You know, what we just heard from Dr. Young is that this is much deeper. This is systemic. It's long running. And I suppose that he would say, a few changes in policy, even significant changes in policy, aren't enough. That it is the entire system of policing and beyond that needs to be changed. What That can feel daunting, but what do you make of that assessment? Well, it's accurate. Well, the, the first thing is, when you say reform, reform requires a lot more work than, that, than, than is what required in a 12- or 6-month period. Reform is going to require continuous work, continuous remodeling, continuous addressing, because as soon as new things come up, you have to address them. You can't just enact six new policies and then go with those policies for the next 20 years and expect things to change. Reform has to be exactly what it implies, and it's a very strong word. And that's what we need in this country. And I'm not the first person to say it, and I won't be the last. Who's doing a good job? You surveyed departments all over the country for your book, The Black and the Blue. What did you find as the communities that are making some inroads on this? 
Well, you know, as I, as I remember reading last week, I was uh, struck by some of the things that Seattle had done uh, back in uh, the last five to six years in terms of training, training orientation, focusing on community policing. I was struck as to the turnaround that the New Orleans Police Department made. You know, New Orleans Police Department was, was known as one of the most corrupt departments in the United States. And at some point over the last 10 years, last 10 to 12 years, they made a shift and started uh, instituting better accountability measures. And, you know, some things don't have to be really complex. And I'll, I'll give you an example. What the New Orleans uh, superintendent of police said was they instituted a program where your partners are equally responsible for your actions. And what we realize is that a lot of officers, we're in a stressful job mm-hmm. and we're in stressful conditions. We're working overtime to make ends meet. And in New Orleans, they weren't making enough money. So they instituted a program where if, if you're having a bad day, right, and it just doesn't feel good to you, well, why should you be the lead person in dealing with someone with a complex problem? Why, should your, why can't your partner just say, stand by, I'll be the lead on this, and I'll count on you to be my backup, rather than to send you, who is already in a bad way, into dealing with this person that's already having a worse day? So they also, have an account, they also establish accountability where um, officers that witnessed things that done, that did nothing, just like the officers in Minneapolis, were liable to be disciplined and, and fired or terminated, just like the officers who committed acts. So some of these things are not as complicated as they seem, but in many cases, it starts from the top. And that speaks to some of the legislation that is being considered in Colorado, this duty to report, which seems to have uh, some buy-in from lawmakers, from the police as well, though the approach exactly uh, is, is up in the air. Matthew, thank you for your perspective. I really appreciate it. No problem. Matthew Horace spent 30 years in law enforcement. He's the author of The Black and the Blue, A Cop Reveals the Crimes, Racism, and Injustice in America's Law Enforcement. My name is Siri Brockman. I live in Denver. I would like to comment on the protests. They've been very peaceful. People have been reading poetry. We laid in the grass for nine minutes in honor of George Floyd. Everyone is standing in solidarity. It makes me really happy because I'm from Minneapolis. That community is very special and they have a very strong community. So it's important to me when I see things like protests in all 50 states. This is The Listening Session, a special from Colorado Matters and CPR News. CPR is funded by our community of active members, and that means a lot to us here at Colorado Public Radio. What I love is this reciprocal impact that in turn, it makes us want to do our jobs better and just even be better stewards of the money entrusted to us. It means the world to me that we are funded by listeners. I'm membership director Jason Moore. We're so grateful for your support. Thank you for making the statewide service possible. Let's listen now to the most recent visiting scholar in conservative thought at CU Boulder. William Allen now works for CURE, the Center for Urban Renewal and Education in Washington, D.C. I think the time has come for the point to be made as loudly as possible, nonviolently, not as a matter of confrontation with innocent people and certainly not with destroying property and taking lives if some are doing 
But we've got to look ourselves in the face and say clearly, this is not good enough. We can be better than this. This morning, Allen hosts a national prayer with religious leaders across the country. We think it's critically important to invoke the power of prayer and to bring together the leaders of communities who have the capacity to step back into those communities through their congregations and begin the process of rebuilding. CPR's Andrea Dukakis spoke with Alan, who is black, about the recent protests. He praised people who came with a peaceful message and denounced those bent on destruction. Martin Luther King etched that in our memory forever. The whole theme, the whole meme of nonviolence was just another way of underscoring what it means to stage a protest that communicates as opposed to a demonstration that destroys. Sometimes it meant even subjecting oneself to the violence of others with restraint. And they even conducted schools to prepare people to do so, to reinforce it. Why have we become so inarticulate in this early 21st century compared to what had been accomplished in the middle 20th century? And why do you think that um, so many Americans have joined into these particular protests of late? What has motivated them right now? Outrage. Outrage that has been growing, not just the response to the death of George Floyd, which was sufficient to outrage any human being as far as I'm concerned, but a growing outrage, which is a reflection of growing division in our society. That's why we've called the prayer breakfast. We understand that what is happening here is not a reaction to police brutality, but a reaction to increased separation in the society. We preach daily separateness and otherness. We have forgotten how to preach common citizenship. We don't even know how to express common citizenship. We only reduce citizenship to the principles of race and ethnicity and other terms of distinction. Do you think there's too much focus on race in this country? Oh, there's no question about it. Absolutely. There's not just too much focus on it. I'll tell you the truth. Uh, If you ask me who killed George Floyd, I will say, you make a mistake if you call it Derek Chauvin. Uh, He was like the pistol in the hand of a murderer. The murderer is an entire structure whose weight bore down through Chauvin's knees on the neck of Derek Floyd. And that structure, which is overseen by a managerial elite, by presidents, chancellors, provosts, generals, publishers, editors, and many others, who all preach one thing day in and day out throughout this entire society, and that is difference. That is their message. They call it by differing names. They speak of systemic this or that, or of diversity, or of inclusion. Their message is difference and otherness. And they're driving the society mad with it. And that madness is what comes out in episodes such as that, which took the precious life of George Floyd. Can you give me an example of that otherness being emphasized? Go on any university campus. Go on to any military academy or any military base. Go into any major corporation. 
Just look at the statements being issued routinely now and almost robot-like by major corporations or major universities. My former university, Michigan State University, is another, where what people do more often than not is express a kind of paternalistic sympathy for black folk. Now, I've got to tell you something. It wasn't a black man who died under the knee of the police officer Chauvin. It was a human being and a fellow citizen. And people who can't see that first but instead see race, they are the ones who are causing that to happen. The idea that folks are too quick to think of it as a race issue rather than an issue of a person's life, they're distancing themselves from it in a way? Oh, absolutely. They don't see themselves there. They don't see the knee on their own neck. Because if they did, they wouldn't see it first as a question of race. That tells you they've separated themselves out. They think they're privileged. They're different. And that's the message they preach constantly. If they thought it were they, they wouldn't be outraged because he was black, but because he was one of them. And that's the what will restore a sense of community, where we all see each the other as one of us and not seeing it as a matter of us and them. Did you see the knee on your own neck? Yes, not because my neck is black, but because I saw a beautiful man. And you must reflect, I don't know if you've paid enough attention to the photos, but he was really quite a lovely fellow, George Floyd was. A human being, fully invested with the glory of God in every respect. And to see him treated in that beastly manner, it was impossible not to imagine myself treated so. Not because I'm black, but because I'm a human being with fundamental sentiments of humanity. Do you see common ground between the left and the right, and if so, where in all of this? If there is to be common ground, it's got to be on the ground of American principles. There are no common grounds apart from that. Those American principles, of course, embrace no denomination or sect, but do embrace a fundamental orientation towards principles of conscience, which are embedded in us through our religious foundations and traditions. So, yes, there is a basis for common principle, but it cannot be defined as a devotion to a partisan cause. Do you struggle at all with the label conservatism at a time when many white supremacists have taken on that mantle as well? I find very few white supremacists who are comfortable calling themselves conservatives. I am myself not particularly tied one way or the other to the term. It it really doesn't mean a great deal to me. Uh, What means something to me is, of course, the principle of self-government and the respectability of the institutions that have made it possible for us. And if someone wants to call that conservative, I will accept it. I don't go around raising a flag for it, as I told them when I was called to the University of Colorado. I don't think that conservatism is itself a warrant for any political policy or position. I think that requires thoughtful determination in each and every circumstance, that one might more often vote Republican than Democrat or vice versa, is a reflection of the consideration of the issues at stake and not a mere expression of loyalty. Thanks so much for talking to me. I'm so glad you called. CPR's Andrea Dukakis with William Allen, the most recent visiting scholar in conservative thought at CU Boulder. They spoke Wednesday. 
My name is David Faree. I'm a listener from Loveland, Colorado. And I think it's really important that white people specifically take time to account for our own actions in this time. I see a lot of comments of, well, why is it happening in liberal cities or democratic cities? And it's really important to make the distinction that racism isn't democratic or republican. Racism is about white people. And white legislators continue to fail people of color and black people through our inaction, right? And I think to me that's really important. We need white legislators to actually put the pen to paper and create policies and do the work to create a more just and anti-racist society. This is The Listening Session, a special from Colorado Matters and CPR News with Avery Lill. I'm Ryan Warner. Radio helps you stay informed, entertained, and connected with your community. And so does your smart speaker, because your smart speaker is also a radio. Just ask your smart speaker to play CPR News, stay connected at home, and never miss a minute. President Trump this week made it known that destructive protests would be met with military might. Also this week, an Episcopal church in Washington, D.C. became a flashpoint. That's when protesters were tear-gassed as the president left the White House grounds to get a picture of himself holding a Bible. We had asked Colorado's Episcopal leader, Bishop Kim Lucas, onto the show before all of that to talk about the church's role at this moment. Bishop, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's good to be with you. I do think we ought to start with what happened in D.C. this week. Uh, We're actually, I think you served before coming to Colorado. Uh, With a few days distance, what do you make of that event at St. John's? Um, For me, it was a really hard event because uh, one of the things that we as Episcopalians, no matter what race we are, no matter uh, what our class is, uh, we all share a covenant by which we, we promise that we will seek and serve Christ and all persons and love our neighbor as ourselves. We promise that we will strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being. And so taking the president's marching up to St. John's with the Bible in context of having Episcopalians and at least one of my fellow colleagues and priests being tear gassed as they were peacefully assembling uh, in that churchyard uh, just speaks to kind of the, the deep divisions in, in our world right now and how I it is my desire that um, we who are disciples, we who claim to follow Jesus, will not use our sacred symbols in ways that promote things that are antithetical to our gospel call. You are the first African-American to lead the Episcopal Church in Colorado, and your flock is overwhelmingly white. I bring that up because earlier this week I spoke with Adrian Miller. He leads the Colorado Council of Churches, and I just want to play an excerpt about predominantly white congregations. So I know anecdotally that preachers have told me when they even mention the words Black Lives Matter that people get up in the middle of the sermon and walk out. Now let that sink in for a moment. And so a lot of, I know quite a few pastors that want to do the right thing, but they're hesitant because they don't want to divide their congregation. Will you reflect on that for me, and do you identify with it at all? You know, I work really hard to root 
my life and the life of my people in uh, our baptismal covenant, those promises that we made. And I am the first to say that my first allegiance, my first alliance is to my baptismal covenant. And every other alliance is conditional. It is conditional on to whether that alliance is working for the causes of justice and freedom and peace and, and care for all of God's people and God's creation. And so people can try to, to um, frame things in, in a partisan political sort of way. But for me, I, I try to frame things always in the context of this is who you promised you would be. Hmm. This is what we're called to do. You have been very generous with your time this morning because you have been listening to our listening session. And I want to spend just a few moments uh, asking you to reflect on what you've heard, what stands out, what you might disagree with, what you want to amplify. Well, one of the questions that you asked a couple of times, Ryan, was, what makes George Floyd different? Mm. And that is a question that I have been pondering um, for a couple of weeks now. And what I think makes it different is that we as, as a nation watched those excruciating eight minutes and 43 seconds. And we saw a man restrained, begging for his life, begging for mercy, calling for his mother. We saw people on the street trying to intervene. But what was so different was on social media, we kept getting pictures of the police officer's face, of the coldness, of the indifference, of the clarity that they did not see George Floyd as a child of God or as a human being. And I think that held a mirror up to our country asking us, is this who we want to be? Do we want to be people who cannot see the humanity and someone begging for mercy? Um, That's fascinating. So it was what was in the frame, that fuller picture that you think has been so stirring. I, I think that. And that's not to, to denigrate um, the deaths of Tamir Rice or Freddie Gray or Philando Castile or... or all those other uh, black males who have been unarmed and killed uh, by police. But that moment, I think, was, was really a mirror to our nation. I want to listen to something expressed in 1960 by a man whose voice I think you'll recognize. I think it is one of the tragedies of our nation, one of the shameful tragedies, that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours, if not the most segregated hours in Christian America. Uh, I definitely think the Christian church should be integrated, and any church that uh, stands against integration and that has a segregated body is standing against the spirit and the teachings of Jesus Christ and it fails to be a true witness. Uh, but this is something that the church will have to do itself. I don't think church integration will come through uh, legal processes. I might say that my church is not a segregating church. It's segregated, but not segregating. It would welcome white members. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., of course, and my guest is the bishop uh, for the Episcopal Church in Colorado, Kim Lucas. And, and should church integration still be a goal, what, 60 years later? It's tragic that it has to be a goal 60 years later. Huh. I think we are in America and we fight 
constantly against uh, a legacy where black people have not been considered fully human. We were three-fifths a person during slavery. Uh, Post-slavery, the narrative of the imminent threat of the black male um, became large in our consciousness so that any black or brown male over the age of five is considered an imminent threat to people, um, whether you're going for a jog or bird watching. Um, and so even as Christians, we have to combat this internalized narrative that that black people are scary, that ma- black men are threatening just because of who they are. Um, and I was listening, you said I was here on the call, of course, and, and listening to folks. And, you know, I heard you ask uh, William Allen about, you know, if he saw himself on that ground. And he said, um, yes, but not because he was black. And I have three boys. And when I heard about Amon Audbury, I had to hold my breath every time my boy went running. Uh, I When I saw... George Floyd, I saw my child, because that is so much more likely to happen to our black and brown boys than it is to to white hmm. children three, and men. Three times as likely is what the statistics bear out. Bishop, I'm so grateful for your time and for your ears for the last two hours. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's the Bishop of the Episcopal Church in Colorado, Kim Lucas. And thank you so much for joining us on this special listening session from Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner with Avery Lill, and you can keep this discussion going using the Twitter hashtag AskCM. Your impressions will inform our future coverage, and there will be lots of future coverage on this issue. This is CPR News.